Hey everyone, Gil Gross here. It is day four of the Australian Open, and I am live to talk about yesterday's action, to talk about today's upcoming action. Uh, something new, something different that I haven't done before, but I began this tournament and decided I wanted to do this a couple of times and, and see how it plays out. I love uh, love being live with with you guys, and I want to talk about Whatever you guys want to talk about for the most part, although I do have material prepared. So if nobody has comments for 30 minutes, I will talk for 30 minutes. Uh, however, I do want this to be a, an interactive mailbag-like experience. Before What I plan to do is before every round, um, and obviously since we're in the middle of rounds here, round two is halfway done, I will be here same time, same place tomorrow. And one more housekeeping note is that if you miss this initially, I will, obviously you can watch it on YouTube later, and I will be posting this on my podcast platforms. So it will be in audio form on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. Does anybody get their podcasts on Stitcher? No offense, but um, uh, it will be on your favorite uh, podcast platform if you miss it initially. So... YT just commented, Hercotch being upset has to be the biggest upset so far. I am going to start there because I agree that that is the most significant result that has been handed down uh, over the course of the, the early course, the first three days of this Australian Open. He not only loses to Adrian Manorino, he loses quickly. He loses decisively in straight sets, and it was a match where the better player was the Frenchman throughout the duration and at every single point. And you are kind of waiting for that momentum to, to, to swing and for the, the drama to kind of emerge, and it just never happened. Hercotch loses in straights, and of course, from a draw perspective, he is the player who I had... Uh, ultimately beating Rafael Nadal, I think that it's a bad matchup somewhat for Nadal. So, uh, I, you know, it's going to end up likely being Karatsev now if the seeds hold. Um, uh, Manorino will now face the winner of Karatsev and... Let me just check this in the draw. I'm, I'm, a, I'm actually blanking on, on that. Who's Karatsev playing? Um, anyway... Um, it's a big shakeup. It's a big shakeup in the most stacked eighth in the entire draw. Back to the printer. If you watched my draw preview, I really should have my printer, but I don't. Um, my printed draws. So I want to just get into it. Hercotch had a finishing problem, and tactically that's where I'd start, is the inability for Hubie to really find a way through Manorino. Interestingly enough, this has been the first major in a while where the court speed is not a big story because it's just normal. It's just kind of medium. Last year, everyone was saying at the beginning of the Australian Open how unbelievable, unbelievably quick it was. Dominic Team actually somewhat complained and was like, this is way too quick and it's not, not my jam. But that hasn't been a big story here. I don't think that's what this is about. Now, it was very windy on the grounds. They were in John Kane Arena, which I think was less windy than the outer courts, and we can get to the wind a little bit later. But ultimately, there was an issue with Hercotch, which is that he couldn't get to net 
because of Manorino's court position. That was my main tactical takeaway here. Because Manorino hugs the baseline and is pretty is a pretty staunch baseline hugger, really hard to back him up, difficult to back him up. And he does that. It's just his play style, and it has to be with the way he he doesn't really bring that much heaviness and weight of shot. He's more of a pace redirector, and he likes to take time away and change direction. That's what he's best at. Take time away, change direction, and that's where his offense comes from. If you look at Hercotch's net approaches, and I'm going to bring the stats up on this match, he just wasn't getting to net. He didn't have the time to get there. And as a result, he really couldn't finish up there and was was ineffective at net. Well, then you look at what he does from the back of the court. And can he create offense? Can he do damage from the baseline? Manorino, as I just alluded to, is someone who likes to take pace off the ball. And unless he's attacking, and then he'll inject some of that pace. But when he's trading, he's not hitting very hard. And he's also not really getting out of position. And he's got great anticipation. And what is Hercotch's weakness at this stage in his career? 100%, it's his ability to generate offense from the baseline. And when I was faced with that tough decision at the start of the year, who is going to be the guy to drop out of the top 10? The reason I picked Rublev and Hercotch, the reason I picked Hercotch, we'll focus on Hercotch, obviously, is that I think from the baseline, only from the baseline, and you take his serve out of it and you take his net play out of it, he's just not there yet. And Manorino did an incredible job returning serve, took Hercotch's net game away via his aggressive court positioning, which just didn't give Hercotch time to get up there. And what you had was a baseline duel between Hercotch and Manorino where Hercotch just couldn't sustain aggression consistently. There were a lot of unforced errors off the ground from Hubert Hercotch. There was 40 of them in total uh, compared to his 29 winners. And he was very frustrated by Manorino's court coverage and his defense. What does Hercotch want to be from the baseline? Hercotch wants to do what Manorino does. He wants to be the one who's absorbing pace, who's changing direction, who's kind of massaging the ball around the court, waiting for that short ball, and then approaching. That's the Hercotch offense outside of his serve, which is instant offense in itself. Lots of free points, lots of aces, and all that. So that is the conundrum that Hercotch found himself in, and he was... He ended up being really tactically lost. Manorino, a bad matchup for Hercotch because Manorino was making Hercotch do what Hercotch doesn't want to do. Generate offense from the baseline. And it's mostly the forehand that that's the issue with, with Hercotch. Um, and, and he doesn't want to be injecting the pace in these rallies. Uh, the last thing I'll say is what I thought would happen in this matchup is Hercotch would dominate the short points. Um, and that did not happen at all because Hercotch made too many errors 
early on in the rallies. He made too many unforced errors on his serve in in the short rallies under four shots. And Manorino's return was really good. And Hercotch just wasn't getting enough out of his serve to save him. Uh, but in general, if you look at the stats, the zero through four stats, they're pretty interesting. So I'll end on this and then I'll I'll move on to something else. Um, on Hercotch's serve, he won 37 points to 19 in under four shots. Manorino's serve, 35 to 7. So you could see that more points were short on Hercotch's serve compared to Manorino, who doesn't doesn't really do that much early damage off of his serve and off of his plus one play. Generally drags, the points are going to be a little bit longer. But um, Hercotch or, or Manorino won 19 points in that zero through four off of Hercotch's serve. Hercotch only won seven points in that subset. And it just tells you there was a level of consistency and stability in that situation where Manorino wasn't pressing and Hercotch was, was looking for that early offense off the ground and he wasn't able to, to, to execute it consistently. And then um, in five through eight shots and nine plus shots, that's where Manorino had the edge because again, Hercotch couldn't find himself through the Frenchman. If he could do that again, I think he would, he would have needed to accept Manorino's game, just play his game. And try to be a little bit more patient and and suffer a little bit more with uh, Manorino. I do think that he was mentally mentally had some panic in him when he just tactically didn't really know what to do. I would have liked him to to settle in. And Manorino is is very awkward. I will say in general, and I want to bring this up, um, Hercotch's track record in majors now. And should there be some alarm there? Well, Wimbledon, he made the semifinal last year, of course. Other than that, it's been very, very spotty, very shaky. My takeaway with that, two and four at the Australian Open, three and four at the US Open, one and four at Roland Garros. Clay, he's a long way from having success there. My big takeaway from that is... Hercotch has not been a top player for very long. I don't think the stats are as alarming as alarming as they look. The Seppi loss and the Manorino loss, those are, I would say, niche opponents. Uh, disappointing, no doubt. Not good losses. You can't sugarcoat it. There's no way around it. But niche opponents, weird play styles, and similarly weird. They're, they're both... Hug the baseline, redirect, take pace off kind of guys, counterattack kind of guys with great anticipation, by the way. Players who are hard to hit through. Uh, um, and that's bad. But before then, we're talking about Hercotch as a guy who's had some bad draws at majors, who's not a top 30 player. Only recently is he a top seed who's really expected to to do damage and to go far, and he's been falling short of those expectations only very recently. So I don't think the stats are as bad as they look for Hercotch. But is that pressure going to mount? Roland Garros, next up, he's going to be a top 10 seed again. And he's going to be on his worst surface. 
now you're going to kind of have that pressure mount. We've seen that become very difficult for young players when the when the pressure starts to mount about when will they take that next step in the majors. Obviously, he did have the semifinal run at Wimbledon, so that's nice. Um, going to read the comments, and then I might talk about Nadal, perhaps. Uh, Jeff... About the, the specific chat you're talking about, that's for people who use a, a service called StreamYard. I don't use that software, um, but I, I, can, I can think about it. Nadal is the second favorite to win the Australian Open this year because I think Zverev not having a top 10 win at a slam really hurts him mentally. That's from Karen. I agree that the, the mental side of things is going to be interesting for Zverev to reckon with once he gets that first top 10 opponent. But it's going to be a long time until he gets it. I think at least, uh, I don't think he can get it until Nadal. Hey Gil, how far do you think Alcaraz can go? He played some insane physical points against Lajevic with a straight sets win. I have Alcaraz in the semifinals and that Berrettini matchup is something that we're definitely going to talk about tomorrow. Again, I'm going to be here same time, same place, live on YouTube tomorrow. I am uh, I am going to talk about Nadal here now. Hopefully this stream is holding up all right. I see that the bit rate is a little bit down. So Nadal gets through Hompfman in straight sets. Closest set was the third. It was 6-4. It was 6-2, 6-3, 6-4. And Hoffman, I think, a, a good warm-up for Karatsev, to say the least. Uh, sorry, for Hatchinov in the next round. Because Hoffman is a backhand-centric guy. Really good two-hander. Six-foot-five, tall like Hatchinov, who is going to handle Nadal's cross-court forehand relatively well. And he did. He's someone who steps into the court and really clubs his backhand. Um, and in that respect... I thought from the baseline, it was a good match, him and Nadal. It was pretty competitive, pretty entertaining, especially when they were in those neutral baseline rallies. When the patterns were disrupted, that is when I thought that Nadal really showed his class above Hoffman. That's where Nadal built a, a big advantage. Whenever, first of all, Slice was introduced, the Nadal Slice... Uh, was difficult for Hoffman whenever he made him go down low. It was a really good backhand slice day for Nadal. Uh, whenever drop shots were introduced into the the points, Hoffman really struggling with that shot, and it hurt him in some big spots. And then Nadal, I can't say that his drop shot really stood out, but it you know he's a lot better at executing that. And then net play, Hoffman struggling at net, 59% net points won, 16 for 27. Nadal taking care of business 72% of the time. Just, again, when the points were breaking down, when the patterns were changing, when the feel and the touch were was introduced, Nadal was way, way better than Hoffman. And it was a good forehand day for Nadal. Now back to that cross-court pattern. I do think this is interesting. Hoffman just, although he hits his backhand big, although he he's really good from that side, and his stats on his backhand were better than his forehand even, 
He's going cross-court almost every time. And Nadal did a really good job, I think, of settling into that uh, ad side and waiting for his chance to go down the line with his forehand. So even though Hoffman was hitting big and heavy cross-court, he just didn't have that change down the line as well as Nadal had that with his forehand down the line. So I still felt like Nadal was able to get the better of that cross-court. It was the backhand for Nadal that was probably the worst part of his game. It just it just didn't look right for most of the match. But when Nadal's backhand is off, it's something he's able to overcome. After all, it's not something he relies on to create a lot of his offense. It's, it's a setup shot for his forehand for the most part. He's able to still be consistent on it. He's still able to defend with it and all of that. But he will want the backhand to be firing a little bit more. Lastly, the serve... The serve was kind of back down to earth after 13 aces in the uh, Melbourne final against Cressy and seven aces against Giron. It looked a little bit more back to normal. And I just want to make one more point on the Nadal serve. Um, the stats that we are going to ultimately be seeing a lot about the comparison between Nadal's serve in 2021 at, at this event and this year... It's just not an apples-to-orange comparison. That stat needs proper context. He was serving at 70% speed for the first, like, three rounds. And then he was ramping it up. But last year, he had that back injury, and he wasn't serving hard for, like, the first three rounds. So I'm seeing a lot of miles-per-hour comparisons. Not to take away from Nadal, I'm not saying that he hasn't beefed up the serve and that he's not hitting it big right now. Not really what I'm what I'm saying. But it shouldn't be compared with last year. You know, you got to pick another year. Uh, give me, give me a 2020 comparison. Give me a 2019 comparison. That's still Carlos Moya era. Um, and you know, Nadal just the the serve's going to be important for Nadal. For me, the jury's still out. Um, Hercotch has an upset alert. Yeah, I mean, the consistency hasn't been there. And again, it was more of a matchup thing with Nadal. I do think that because of the way Hercotch defends on his backhand side, uh, you know, Hercotch wants to wait. Hercotch wants to be attacked. And I, I do think that he could have played that counter-attacking style against Nadal, uh, coupled it with the big serve, and it could have been... It could have been difficult for Nadal. You know, the, the Manorino matchup completely turns it on his head. But ultimately, I don't trust Hercotch. And that's why I picked him to drop out of the top 10 as far as the entire year is concerned. So I was surprised with myself picking him to the quarterfinal as well. Uh, but it, it became a matchup thing. I do see some comments about the Nadal not sliding to protect the foot, to protect the knees, and Nadal not sliding on the hard court. That's something to watch. You, you don't love that. And it's never been a huge part of his hard court movement. So it's not like, you know, Djokovic not sliding on hard court or something, which would which would be completely different. But that is uh that's something to monitor again there's a different level in, of intensity 
that Nadal is going to see when he plays a top 20 player or a top 10 player. It's a completely different ball game when it comes to his movement and it and his defense. And if you just look at Nadal's runs at the Australian Open um in 2019 when he had uh he, he had the draw kind of open up for him pretty nicely and he did not face he faced Tsitsipas who was undercooked at that point in his career in 2019 in the semifinal and just wasn't really challenged. Demon Orr in that event, uh, you know, didn't face really anyone who could really bother him and absolutely destroyed everyone. I mean, it was it was a beatdown for Nadal in 2019. And then the final against Djokovic, and it was just a, a total 360, uh, actually a 180. I should be accurate because a 360 would uh, put him right back where he started. And, and Novak roughed him up in that final, famously. And then uh, he looked really good last year, too, until he lost to Tsitsipas. The better, the better the player is across the net from you, the more you're defending, the more you're losing that quarter second that you need, and the more that 5% of 10% uh, of, of movement is required, of timing is required, you're stretched out more, you're under more duress. The reality is Nadal controls play against most most of the, the field. Nadal is absolutely in charge. He is on top of points using his forehand, and he's not having to defend as much. Once he plays a better player, I'm curious to see how much he's able to scramble, how much he's able to put defense into offense. How is his drop shot retrieval when he's when he's not sliding? That's very interesting to me. Now you look at a guy like Roger Federer, and he's uh he's rarely sliding on hard court. Andy Murray, he's rarely sliding on hard court. So when it comes to movement, there's styles to it. There's no necessity. You don't have to slide. But Nadal is someone who in the past, has slid on hard court, and especially when he's getting up to drop shots, um, and especially when he is using continental grip defense in the corners, definitely someone who slid, and that is something to watch. Karatsev handling pressure well. Two great wins so far. I would not go that far. In fact, Karatsev was an absolute train wreck for a, a large portion of his first round match against Jauma Munar. Munar can't hurt him. Munar has no weapons other than his speed and his ability to be consistent and to keep the ball in the court. That's it. And that was a five-setter. Mackie McDonald, he looked good. So, but I I don't know. Am I, am I convinced or encouraged by Karatsev's form? Not Not particularly. Uh, but, but you know, he his game is big. His game is looking as big as ever, no doubt. What is your take on the Fritz-Tiafo matchup today? Who do you like for it? I feel Fritz is in better form at the moment, but Tiafo likes being the underdog in big tournaments and is dangerous. I do think it's a nice matchup for Tiafo, but Fritz right now seems to be the better player. And, you know, you just can't argue with the form that Fritz has been on hardcourt for uh, the last, really, couple months, I would say. Uh, what he did at the ATP Cup, he played Zverev pretty impressively well, even in a two-set loss. He beat Felix Ojeali Asim. He beat Cameron Norrie. 
uh, you rewind back to Paris, had a really good run in Paris, beating Nori, beating Sonigo, beating Rublev. You go back to St. Petersburg. He made the final there. You go back to Indian Wells. He beat Zverev and made the semifinal there. He is on an absolute tear. And although I think Tiafo is a player who enjoys playing the big hitters, he likes to counterattack. He likes to absorb the pace. He likes to... Uh, I think, I think he just is more engaged by the shorter rallies mentally. He he stays in it more and he likes it. I will go with Fritz. I think he's the more reliable player right now when it comes to executing the offense and the the plus one play, the serve and the return as well. I do see some calls that Manorino will defeat Karatsev. Yeah, that's the, the matchup I blanked on earlier. Manorino Karatsev. That that's that's an interesting one. Don't really want to get into that now. It's two days away. Um is Medvedev in four against Zverev still your prediction? That one's from Money Webby. Uh, yes. Yep, that's still my pick. Haven't seen reason. Uh, I guess let's end on on what's going to be the main event. Let's end on Zverev and Kyrgios. Uh, sorry, Medvedev and Kyrgios, which I did talk about a little bit in the mailbag. Um, here's my my one big picture caveat with the Medvedev pick to win the Australian Open. If someone's vulnerable in the early rounds, I do think it's Medvedev. I don't think it's Zverev. And that's because the one thing that gives me pause about Medvedev in general, just taking the Kyrgios matchup, putting that aside, in general, the three-week offseason concerns me. And at some point, I think that might catch up to him unless he gets through this Australian Open and is able to take a proper vacation um, and a proper offseason. There's no doubt that 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 the three-week offseason is just not ideal. And you saw Novak avoid that, go out of his way to avoid that, whether or not he was going to be able to, uh, to enter Australia or not. Obviously, that became the issue with the Australian Open, but you saw that Novak made the decision, I'm not playing ATP Cup. And Medvedev had a similar schedule. And I I think, I think it might have been wise to skip it. And just in general, I think once he gets deep in the tournament, that becomes a bit of a non-factor. That's okay. But right now, I worry about just the, the mental and physical freshness of Medvedev early on if he gets into a war if someone drags him into the trenches. And the question is, can Kyrgios do that? I don't think so. We saw what Medvedev did in Toronto against two really big servers in Riley Opelka and John Isner, where he he made them he made their serves look ordinary. And 
Kyrgios is going to see a lot of a lot more of his serves come back, and then it becomes a focus exercise. So when the serves come back, how consistent is Nick Kyrgios going to be at delivering those finishing blows without making mistakes? Is that going to be a thing that he's able to do over and over and over again on his service games? I I have no doubt that he's going to get looks at those at those plus one forehands. I have no doubt that he's going to be able to control Medvedev offensively and and take advantage of of Medvedev's kind of early court position. I think I I expect to see a lot. I expect to see some serve volley. I expect to see some serve plus drop shot. I expect to see the the big forehands behind the serve. Can he do that? How many times can he do that when the first serve is coming back? Because the freebies are going to dry up a little bit. And then when it comes to the rallies, is he going to have the discipline throughout the match to, to win long points against Medvedev? I think that when he locks in, he can do it. When he focuses, when he is dialed up, when he wants it bad— but is he going to be able to do it for three hours and and maintain that, or is he gonna throw in those those sloppy games? Um, and then the return is is kind of a problem with him. His return is not good. The forehand return, especially, is not good. So Medvedev is going to bring his serve to the table, and how. How much is Nick going to be able to get into those Medvedev service games? I think the serve return battle, Medvedev almost always had the has the advantage in that respect. It almost doesn't matter who he's playing, but for Kyrgios, for Kyrgios, he usually relies on having the advantage there with his own serve. He probably won't, and uh, I do think if it's if if Nick is locked in, that there can be some really fun moments in this one. But, of course, the the pick is Medvedev, which won't surprise anyone. Um, I'm excited to break it down. I am going to stay up. I am going to watch it. And I will have post-match coverage of that. So, it is 4 o'clock. It is time to watch some tennis. Hope you enjoyed this. Same time, same place next week. Again, something that I'm experimenting with. Something that... Uh, we'll see. Maybe this will become a, a normal thing. Maybe not. I got to see how I feel about it right now. Just uh, figuring it, figuring everything out. How I like to do this, and uh, I'm having fun. Hopefully, it's uh, hopefully it's been enjoyable for all of you guys. So enjoy the tennis round three, day four. Again, make sure to uh, catch me same time, same place tomorrow. And if you missed any of this, it'll be up on YouTube and podcast platforms. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New 
new episodes of Fly on the Wallin drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallin wherever you get your podcasts.